a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. A doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, now Advanced Medicine Monday has officially begun. And the question I have for you, Dr. Batar, let's just say you get a new patient. The first thing they ask you is, hey, Dr. Batar, how often do you poop? If they ask me that question, I would think that they are probably more aware and in tune with their bodies than most people because that is a very important question. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, it's so, it's so funny. I had to throw that at you just out of the gate because, you know, last week I was doing a show and, and it just, uh, you know, occurred to me there was a, um, uh, an article about, you know, prejudice against fat doctors. You know, some patients were going, hey, do, do I really want to listen to a doctor who's obese? And so it brought me the question of how do you determine if, a, you know, if a doctor is really may, may be helpful to you? You know, does he live in the lifestyle? Does she live in the lifestyle? And I said, you know, I think a good interview question for your doctor is seriously, how often do you have a bowel movement? <laughs> and, I, and I know that it sounded offensive to some, but it's like you answered it exactly how I knew you would. And anybody, even Dr. Nick Gonzalez said the same thing, that that means somebody's keyed in and intelligent about a very critical aspect of health. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would add to that. I would say, you know, if a doctor is overweight or obese, now I know people have criticized me about this, especially the doctors, uh-huh. but to me, you cannot be, remember what the word doctor means anyway, it means to teach. Yes. How can you teach people how to live the right way if you yourself are overweight? Mm-hmm. You have to lead by example, and it's very difficult to try to preach something when it's quite evident to everybody around you that you don't practice what you preach. Yeah. And so I think that that's another thing. Look at look at the look at your doctor. I mean, if he has cigarette ashes on his lab coat, that's not the <laughs> doctor you want to go to. You know what I mean? Not a good idea. Now, I, I've given a pass to those folks because there are people on the planet that you know will eat clean, good, organic foods, but they'll eat it to excess because they just love food so much. And they could admit and acknowledge, listen, I just love to eat. And you know, the, being a little overweight is not in and of itself a, a disease. It's when it's toxic weight. When There are a whole other uh, series of factors because you can have somebody that's overweight doesn't have any any hypoglycemia or diabetes whatsoever, for instance. Well, Robert, he, here's, here's where you and I would be differing mm-hmm. on, on this because, first of all, if somebody hadn't known you or seen you, they would think, oh, well, Robert must be a little bit overweight. And you're obviously extremely healthy, very lean. Mm-hmm. You know, you eat very clean. I know that because I've sat and ate with you many times. Mm-hmm. But I, I would disagree with what you said because to me, mm-hmm. if somebody loves to eat, that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I love to eat. I, eat, I, I do. I'd love to eat. My mm-hmm. wife loves to eat actually more than even I do. And uh, I always tell my wife, uh, you know, Careful. my joke she is might, that she might she's slap a, you. <laughs> sorry? She might slap you for saying that. Well, she slaps me for a lot of things. So. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I always tell her that she's a fat chick in a skinny chick's body uh, because of the way she eats. I mean, she eats a lot of food. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with eating a lot, Mm -hmm. but I'm talking about being overweight. Okay. Now, what is the difference? Because some people's metabolism is 
faster than other people's, mm-hmm. and I understand that. And there are certain things that people can't help, and that's why they get overweight, and I understand that. But we're talking about a doctor now. Remember, this is an interview question for a doctor. Sure. So if a doctor is overweight, you know, there's a number of factors that could go into play. Either one, he's overeating the wrong things, or two, he's not exercising enough, or three, he's toxic in his thyroid gland, his hypothalamus, his pituitary, his adrenal axis are all out of whack. Or, you know, he's... Uh, uh, insulin resistant. I mean, there's a whole gamut, but the point is he's a doctor. So he should either one, be able to figure out what's wrong with him and get himself better. Or two, he shouldn't be in that state in the first place. Hmm. And so now I'm not talking about with just, you're not, everyday cut, you're people, not cutting you know? these doctors any slack, are you? Well, no, I'm don't. I mean, why would you go <laughs> to a mechanic mm-hmm. that has a car mm-hmm. that's, you know, held together with paper clips and glue and gum? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and uh, I just uh, I like to get these, uh, uh, let's say, perspectives out there so that we can you know, make better decisions about the guys and gals we want helping us to get well. I have been criticized for my opinion on this subject many times, and I'm surprised you actually brought it up because I had no mm-hmm. uh, well, that's, awareness that's that you do. were going to actually – Yeah, we I, you gave me no inclination we are going to open the show this way, but yeah. I have had many doctors that have told me that – it's irresponsible for me to say that because there's many other factors that could play into it. And look, I understand that, but as I tell my kids, any excuse will do. So you don't have to make a special excuse. Mm-hmm. You know, you people can. You don't have to come up with a special excuse to impress me. In other yeah, words, yeah, yeah. an excuse is an excuse is an excuse. And um, if you're looking for a doctor, then look for a doctor that's that lives what he preaches, and that's evident that he lives what he preaches. Mm. Well, but if the, if, the, if the fat doctor is not counseling you on weight loss, still, still a problem, huh? Well, now it's hypocrisy, is it not? <laughs> At that point, you're like, okay, now, all right, you, you've gone over the edge with that one. Yeah, uh, well, here's, a, here's an example. Mm-hmm. I walk into my exam room sometimes while I'm getting my own treatments, mm-hmm. and it blows people away. New patients, they start laughing. They're like, oh, are you, are you doing this uh, – you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And, and I said, well, I'm doing it for the same reason you're going to do it if you need it. Mm-hmm. And so you actually do what you talk about, Dr. Batar, what you discuss and what you preach. And I look at him like, are you serious? That's a, is that a rhetorical question? Is that like supposed to be humor? Because of course I practice what I preach. I mean, the reason I'm preaching this, the, the results yeah, I mean, the bottom line is the experience you want to share. And, you know, I, I think that brings up that bigger picture again of the, the uh, paradigm from which allopathic medicine has sprung, or certainly as, as it mostly operates now in a current way. It, it really doesn't have much to do with recovery of health, but it comes back to managing management of symptoms. And if you go to an overweight doctor who manages his symptoms well, and, and that's all you're into, okay, maybe you've made a good choice for managing your symptoms, but not for really getting well. Exactly. I mean, from a very rudimentary standpoint, and let's just discuss overweight for just a moment. Sure. From a purely physics standpoint, it's a caloric intake and a caloric expenditure issue. So why would a person that is overweight be overweight if they were not taking in too many calories? Well, there are a couple of reasons because if you just talk about a caloric standpoint and a person starts eating a more balanced meal, and starts using certain techniques that bodybuilders will use. For example, you eat five or six times a day. Why? Oh, my God, if I eat five or six times a day, I'm going to be like the size of a house. Well, that's not necessarily true because you're actually increasing the level that your furnace is burning at. So you're increasing your thermostat because each time you eat, it takes energy expenditure. So you're actually burning 
more fuel in the process of digesting your food and absorbing your food. So that's a that's one of the tricks that the uh, bodybuilders will use as an example. When I used to do natural bodybuilding 25, 30 years ago, that was one of the things, one of the techniques that we used. Another technique is utilizing the body's own innate intelligence. So if you're out in a desert, what, I'm going to throw you under the bus here, Robert. I'm going to start putting some <laughs> questions to you. So you throw tell me. me. I know you know the answers. Throw this, me out into the desert. That's not very nice. Yeah, I know, but you know the answer That's to because this. I no, ask you, it's, it's, it's because I ask you how many times you poop, right? Exactly. There you go. Just, I'm just returning the favor. <laughs> so if you're out, and it's kind of close to that anyway. So if okay. you're out in a desert, are you going to pee more or less? Uh, well, depends on if you're carrying loads of water with you or not, but you're going to pee a lot less. You're going to pee a lot less, exactly. And the reason is, is because the body wants to conserve water. So mm-hmm. it's going to actually recycle, if you will, yeah. and try to preserve as much water as possible so your urination the amount will be lesser and more concentrated well the same thing happens with food when the body perceives starvation the body will hold on to fat because fat is an emergency stored method of uh caloric or yeah, storing fuel, energy, if you want. Storing the, energy. The fat exactly. is a stored form of fuel yeah getting you through so, the fat the long uh, times of, of famine so to speak you want to have some level of weight on you in those cases or if I suppose if you said lengthening out the time between meals, your body's going to have a sense of metabolically hold on to that energy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, but if you look at most obese people and you look at their habits, they don't eat that much. Most people that are obese are actually eating less and they're trying to starve themselves because they are self-conscious about their weight or they're trying to, for health reasons, achieve better uh, body composition, so they don't eat as much. But the problem is the body sees it as a mode of starvation. And so if it's starving, the body's going to hold on to fat. So you're actually defeating the purpose that you've set out to, which is to lose weight or lose fat. Now, that's another important point, and we'll come to that in a second, the difference between weight and fat, because a lot of people get so enamored with weight. But remember, yes. a person who has le- more lean body mass is going to weigh more. So you shouldn't be concentrating on weight. You should be concentrating on fat. Yeah, that's it. it's really interesting you say that because I, I just when you hear all of the the so the weight loss programs out there, it's it's never a, a fat loss. Pro- it's always about weight loss, weight loss. Exactly. Because, probably because it's so much easier to lose weight than it is to lose fat. Well, that's uh, it's it's a lot easier to lose weight because of the the water content. Mm-hmm. And so, but you know, let's look at this for example. If you have a box of styrofoam that's the size of a house. Versus a concrete brick, mm-hmm. which is going to weigh more. The concrete brick. Well, yeah. not let's say not, not maybe the size of a. Uh, well, a we get, I would get the perspective though. I mean, if you even have something significantly smaller than enough, uh, you know, those styrofoam peanuts, it's still going to weigh very little compared to the concentrate of something that has a lot of mass. And of course, exactly, muscle. And they used to out. be. There used to be a company about twenty years ago, a supplement company that used to cater to the bodybuilding industry and the health industry, the fitness industry. And one of their very interesting tactics was they had this challenge that they would put out, a 30-day or 60-day challenge, and they would have before and after pictures of the individuals that had participated in this challenge. Mm -hmm. And very interestingly enough, you would have a picture of a woman before and after, and the picture before, she was obviously way out of shape, looked terrible, and then you would show they would show another picture of the same woman 60 days later and she looked fantastic you know they've they've got the 
workout clothes on or a bikini on or whatever. So you can really see that there's no faking holding your breath in or any of that stuff. There was a huge difference. And then underneath it, they had the weight before Mm -hmm. with the picture before and the weight after. And I would always show people that those two cards and said, do you want to look like this or do you want to look like this? And of course, everybody would say the second picture because she looked great. And I said, but if I told you which, which picture is a woman going to weigh more in? If I told you that this picture, the good picture, the one that you like, yeah. weighs 20 pounds more, what would you say? And this out, Dr. Come on, you know, you're crazy. Right. Then I would take my hand away from the bottom and it would show the actual uh, specifics of the person. And she was 22 pounds heavier right. in the picture where you, she looked fantastic. She was 147 pounds as opposed to um, 127 pounds, but 127 pounds, it was, I'm sorry, it was 167 versus 147. And she w- looked fantastic at 167, but Incredible. she was all yeah. muscle. But yeah, it is, it's about the density and the mass of, of the substance and, and muscle does weigh more than fat. Interestingly enough. So who knew we'd get on this subject, but we are, we're cranking up the advanced medicine Monday. We had a question from a listener when we come back from this break. Get into the definitions of natural medicine or not natural medicine or how it's appropriate to use some unnatural medicine to get you back into natural, healthy shape. So stand by for that and a whole lot more. Dr. Rashi Bittar is with me as he is every week kicking off the week here on Advanced Medicine Monday on the Robert Scott Bell Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. Making sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert. All right, back at it for some more Advanced Medicine Monday. We just learned that uh, some of the uh, medical rewind updates on the archives were a little behind, but they're getting caught up. So if those of you are missing anything, you can still check it out, medicalrewind.com. And there's loads of many hours to catch up on uh, with Dr. Bittar here. Uh, Dr. Bittar, well, you were talking about weight versus mass, fat versus uh, protein, uh, metabolism, eating more to gain less or to lose. I mean, it can be all a little bit, bit, bit confusing. We throwing it all out there like that. Yeah, it can be. Uh, the thing is that we have to really remember that the basics are the where we need to concentrate. So mm-hmm. we were talking about the innate intelligence of the body before we took a break. And one of the things is when people are excessively obese and you start looking at their actual habits, you will notice that they don't eat as much. But what they're doing inadvertently is by not eating, trying to starve themselves, thinking that they're going to lose body fat, what they're actually doing is causing the body to go into a modified starvation mode. And so the body's seeing less food coming in, and it's going to say, uh-oh, less food coming in, less caloric intake, which means that there's less fuel. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to go into a starvation mode. They're th- just like the body holds on to fluid – when you go out in the desert because of the heat and there's not enough water coming in, so will the body hold on to the food or hold on to the fat as an emergency store of fuel. And so it actually makes it more difficult for you to lose body fat. And so the one thing to try to fool the body is to eat more often, smaller amounts, but more often. So now you're actually hitting it twice. You're hitting, one, the fat-burning furnace, the the body has to expend energy to digest food and absorb food. So now if you eat five times a day instead of once a day, you're going to be actually burning five times as much fuel just by eating. And then the second thing is the body's going to see a constant source of fuel coming in, so it's not going to hold on to the fat. 
because it sees constant abundant supply of nutrients and, and fuel coming in. So it's not going to go into that mode where it's going to start laying and storing all that fat. Well, it's like so, a, an adaptive intelligence, you know, exactly. In case, yeah, exactly. Well, this is uh, this is the, the the you said the trick of the bodybuilders as such, and you know we still want to recommend cleaning up what comes in because, as I said, this adaptive intelligence also knows if the food is clean or toxic, and it also alters metabolic rates of detoxification. When we talk about the holding on to fat being an adaptive uh, survival mechanism, you know it's very difficult to eat every two or three hours too. It's very difficult to maintain that type of lifestyle and. If you talk to my office manager who started off as my personal assistant, Tasha's been with me 12 years now, or any of the staff that's worked their way up as my personal assistants, they would have, you know, they'd boil eggs and have yogurt and, and an apple and um, some turkey and cheese and just different things. Every two hours, I would step into my office and grab something to eat. I mean, it only took me two or three minutes to eat, and then I'd go back, and that's how I used to maintain. I haven't been doing that, and of course, you can tell that because I have a lot more body fat on me than I than I did in the past, but you know, it's a simple thing as just eating more often and eating more regularly, and that's that in itself is going to make such a huge difference. Now, of course, let's look at another example here, Robert. Yeah. If somebody has, uh, you, you know, this whole conversation started from how do you decide if the doctor is the right doctor or how do you interview your doctor? Yeah, we didn't go controversial from the get go, did we? No, no, not at all. <laughs> but here's an example: if a doctor has the proper diet, proper lifestyle, meaning he's exercising, he's eating, you know, three, four times a day, he's eating the right things, but he's still fat, or he's still obese, or he's still having a problem. Well, where else are you going to look at? Thyroid, adrenals, mm -hmm. the hypothalamic pituitary axis, these are all major, major issues hormonally being uh, implicated as far as the reason why the person's overweight. And what are most doctors going to do? They're going to give themselves some type of hormone to try to replace the lower level or less functioning organ that's producing lower levels of hormones. Whereas that is the worst thing to do because you're causing a negative inhibitory feedback loop to set in. And that's actually discussed in chapter 11 of my book. The negative inhibitory feedback loop, if it's initiated, you're violating the physiological principles that God designed how our body works. So what I'm saying is that if the hormones are low, if your thyroid hormone or your cortisol levels or, you know, your growth hormone or your whatever is low, your yeah. sex hormones are low, the answer isn't to go and start taking these hormones. And everybody talks about, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm doing bioidentical bio hormones. Uh-oh, yes, yes. Bioidentical or not, it's the same thing. The only difference is that the bioidentical hormones are not synthetic, but they're, the body's still going to respond the same way. And it's, it, people seem to think if it's bioidentical, it's safe or, or something. But you're still eliciting the same cascade of events. You're still causing a negative inhibitory feedback loop to be initiated. The answer isn't giving the body hormones. The answer is trying to figure out why are the hormones low in the first place. Oh my gosh, you did it again. Went right to that. I'm telling you, they, I still when I go out around and travel the country and do lectures... Ine inevitably, someone will bring up Advanced Medicine Monday and Dr. Batar, you know, I'll talk about your book and they'll say, you know, one of my favorite things that he ever said was when he had that aha moment when somebody came to him with the 10%, you know, uh, function of the gallbladder and right, said surgeon. we should remove it, right? Right. And you said, well, wait a second. If we got 10, why can't we try to get it back to 100 instead of make it zero? And it's kind of that, you know, that Robert, same scenario. Funny, and the funniest part is that the, that patient was a surgeon. Yep. 
And I don't know how many gallbladders I've operated on when I was a resident. And just sitting there, this guy had been doing it for 20 years. And we both had the same aha moment at the same time. It's the same time. And it never occurred all those years before. And suddenly you get this. And people love that because they say, you know, it's like somebody has to step outside not to give a a bone to tie because I know it'll upset you, (laughs) the box, (laughs) and start going, hold on a second. What are we doing here? This is a little crazy. This is a little silly. How did we not see this? Yeah. And it's, a, right. and it's the same thing with the endocrine function. And I, this was my mentor in homeopathy also said the same thing. Why are we going to take something external to replace what should be produced internally? Why can't we find out why it's not being produced and shore it up and fun- and let the function do its job, get it back to working? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. So the question is not how much hormone do I need to rebalance it, but the question is why is the organ not producing the level of hormones that it should. And if a doctor tells you it's because you're getting older, yep. you need mm-hmm. to walk. No, not no walk. Run, run away. Yeah. That, because that's that another is a litmus. load of bunk. That's another litmus besides are you pooping often? The there other one is, hey, if I have low hormones, should I take hormones or should we find out why I have low hormones and correct that? And that is exactly where detoxification comes in because mm-hmm. I have had women and men by just removing the – Persistent organic pollutants, the heavy metals, by getting the gut back in order, their Mm -hmm. hormones come in completely by themselves. I haven't done anything Anything. to the hormones. Sex drive comes back. The the vaginal dryness disappears. The anxiety, the depression, the PMS goes away. You know, it really all happens. It's uncanny how much our experience is paralleled in different tracks in life. You know, the women that had come to me also with these problems and to my mentor years before, I learned... With and I had a question about PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and, and same things. One was like, I, I've been through everything. Nothing's working. And my answer was detoxification. Because in every case that I see this, women with, with fibroids, uterine fibroids, ovarian cysts, that they were missing. They were working the endocrine system like in every which way, whether it was synthetic or natural, and still not getting there. I said, well, did you detoxify? I mean, seriously. And all and advertently, advert, whatever it was, they didn't, not to the level it needed to happen. And then suddenly they find exactly what you just said, that normalization can occur because all the blockages to that are being removed. Exactly. And, and that's one of the things, Robert, that if people can just understand this basic principle and understand that as your, as your mentor in homeopathy had said, why are we replacing things mm-hmm. within our body that the body should be making itself? That is a very important question. And in the case of detoxification, it's even simpler because all you're doing is removing the garbage and taking it out of the way so that the body's own normal, mm-hmm. innate metabolic functions can come back online. They're because restored, it's the yeah. garbage that's blocking it from occurring in the first place. And it knows what to do. It's just going, hey, get this garbage out of here. Come on. What are you doing to me? Now, Dr. Batar, is there ever a situation, because we've talked about the, the role of allopathic medicine and even drugs, as you said, if need be, very short burst, short term, just to get you over a hump through a crisis. Could you see that from an endocrine perspective when they talk about all these hormones? Would there ever be a, a thing in your me- uh, medical experience that says, okay, we can get you through this gap to get you on the other side with that? Well, this has been a point of contention also. Mm-hmm. A lot of even my friends that practice the same way, you know, we, we argue this point. And the reason is it's very simple for me. I'm a purist at heart, so to me it doesn't 
you, you shouldn't have to do that. But yet there are certain times just from a symptomatic standpoint because a person's having such a difficult time to kind of bridge that gap. And mm -hmm. so, yes, I will give something if I need to, but it would be something very high up in the cascade so the body can use what it needs to and convert it as it needs to. I will never give an end hormone. Okay. So the only things that I will give an individual, the only things besides trans-D is progesterone or thyroid. Okay. And it's a natural desiccated cold extracted thyroid, which is far superior than even armor. Mm -hmm. Armor, everybody thinks is natural, so it's good. The problem is that armor is bovine from bovine source in the U.S. and it's heat extracted, so all the active ingredients are, you know, they're altered. They're altered, exactly. Yeah. And so we use a, a New Zealand bovine source that has no history of hormonal manipulation as far as using growth hormone in these cattle, and it's cold extracted. Very good. And then I'll use all-natural progesterone, mm -hmm. and the progesterone, again, not progestin, but progesterone, and the progesterone is a precursor for estrogens and for testosterone. So the body will use what it needs in whichever manner it deems most appropriate. Nice, nice. So you're getting them over the bioidentical hump, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. It's hmm. not with the pretense that I'm going to resolve something. I'm just giving them a little bit extra to help them, as you said, just go right over that hump with the understanding, and the patient understands that this is just a temporary thing. It's more for the symptoms than anything else, but the underlying pathology is the most important concern, and it's going to be addressed by figuring out why the body is inhibiting those particular cascades. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's because of some type of toxicity. Right. Well, this is a cool discussion as always. I, I like getting into the now synthetic versus natural because what you do as a physician, it, you, you have tools at your disposal that not everybody has. And I want to talk more about it because we did get a question coming in off the website and I want to address with you when we come back. You're listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. It's the Advanced Medicine Monday version with Dr. Rashid Bittar. All the links are up, including to his international bestseller, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. Go get it now. We'll be right back. on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All right, question time. You can always uh, leave a message for us at 866-939-BELL, 866-939-2355. But we also have the website, and I have a message for us. Dear RSB and Dr. Batar, I'm writing because I need questions answered. Well, that's your standard moment of duh. I mean, you, typically, you're writing for questions and answers, all right? Now, here it goes. For the last six years, my partner has been going to specialists, neurologists, and chiropractors, but none of them have real answers but symptom helpers. She suffers from a hereditary disease called, uh, what is this, Machado Joseph's disease? Machado? How do you pronounce that, Dr. Batar? Do you know that one? I do not. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a wild one. Huh? Four of her family members, including herself, have been diagnosed with it. It is also called SCA-3, spinal cerebellar atro atrophy. Atrophy, atrophy her, yeah. yeah. Her symptoms include ataxia, body cramps, bladder issues, problems with swallowing, double vision, falls, and many others. I would love for you to send us in the right direction on whom I could go see in the New Hampshire area for natural help with the cause. And if you could help us, it would be greatly appreciated. She's an expected grandparent, and it would mean a great deal if she could have more mobility to be in her future grandson's life. 
If you have any other advice or suggestions, please let me know. Thankful for you taking the time to read this. That's Joanne. So it's a, it's a lot in there, Dr. Batar, but she wants natural help, natural help. What does that mean? Well, let's uh, back up for a second, Robert. What's interesting is the condition that she was diagnosed with. And I have this philosophy that when there are three or more words put together that you don't understand, basically it's quite clear that the doctors that even made the diagnosis have no idea what they're talking about. Wait a second. Um, You're saying, this is, I love this. Say this again. So if there's like three big names tied together into one disease, you know, description, it means the docs probably don't know what it is or what's causing it. Right. Well, three, if it's three for a layperson, if it's four for a doctor, they, the, the doctors are clearly unaware of what the condition is. Mm-hmm. I had a patient that came to me with a diagnosis of idiopathic demyelinating polyneuropathy. And the patient asked me, do you know what that is, Dr. Batar? And I said, no, I don't. Now, I can tell you what each one of those words means, but I don't know exactly what that condition is because this is a, a description of a symptomology, uh, a number of different symptoms a person's having, but what's causing it and such, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So she said, can you help me? And I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And her mother was with her. She was a singer from Nashville who actually opened up for the, when Bush got elected the second time, she was the one who opened up the Republican inaugural, whatever it was. She sang for the Republican Party, and then when he got his second term, she actually sang at his uh, I'm sure in, in retrospect, she would have been happier throwing up at the inauguration. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. That's <laughs> probably true. But anyway, she um, she's a very popular singer mm-hmm. today, and uh, I'm sure many people would know who she is. I won't say her name, though, for privacy purposes. But sure. what's interesting is that she had a lot of problems walking. She was getting really from bad to worse. And in her early 20s and was going to be confined to a wheelchair, was already having to use a walker off stage, and it was very difficult for her to walk onto stage. Well, her mom was sitting there, and when I said, I don't know what this is, and then when she asked me, can I help you, you know, can you help me? And I said, yes, of course. The mom said, how can you help her if you don't know what's wrong with her? Hmm. And I said, well, I don't need to know what's wrong with her. I just need to know that there's something causing this problem and I can remove that problem and then she should start working correctly because the body is a, the perfect piece of machinery. It, it knows if, how to heal, in other words. I'm sorry? We come back to that same perspective that it knows how to heal when you remove the obstacles to heal and you just got to find out what the heck is in there, you know, that's sort of that obstacle and get it out. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, I can understand from the mother's perspective because she's sitting here saying, okay, this doesn't make any sense because you don't know what it is, but you're saying you can help and then you're saying that the body knows what it's supposed to do and... And it was there was some confusion then. You could tell there was. And sometimes I don't talk as clearly as I need to. I talk on riddles on purpose because mm-hmm. I want the person to experience the awareness, the aha moment, as you say, yes. themselves. And so I yeah, told I, them that I, my focus mm-hmm. on her would be to just remove these components within her system that we hadn't even yet elicited what they were, but I assumed that they would be present. Right. I explained to them what I thought we would find. And long in the short is within six months, this girl was walking without any problems. She had marked improvement in her gait, in her fluidity of her movements. It was very clear that she would not be confined to a wheelchair. And we've had this type of story happen. If it's happened once, it's happened a, a dozen times. and a half times, if not yeah. more. And the 
interesting component was that she came in with this diagnosis of idiopathic demyelinating polyneuropathy, and if and they said there was no cure for it. She was going to be destined to be in a wheelchair. Now, if that's true, then why is it this woman started getting better? Or the other half a dozen women that were in a wheelchair that came to me with diagnosis of everything from myasthenia gravis to multiple sclerosis to whatever the conditions were, and they're today walking normally. And the other dozen and a half that were in deteriorating levels of getting to that point of being confined to a wheelchair. Now, have we had success with every single person that came to us? Well, ALS patients that have been diagnosed with ALS, we've had some improvement in them, but we have not been able to completely get them back to being 100% functional, although we've been able to get them out of their wheelchairs and walking on a walker or take going from a walker to a cane, mm-hmm. making them more confident in their own ability to ambulate. And if they do fall, that they can actually get up. That's one of the biggest concerns that these patients have, that if I fall, I can't get up. What am I going to do? But getting them to the point that they know that if they do fall, they can actually get up and walk uh, and well, regain their ability to walk on their own. They don't need to just lay there till somebody finds them. And, you know, it may sound a little strange to you and I, but mm-hmm. that's a big thing, a big fear that a person has that knows that if, they, if I lose my balance and I fall, I can't get up. What am I going to do? Well, and I, that, I don't and have the strength that, to actually get up. That old yes. commercial that was so I, – I, I don't know if it came out in the 80s or 90s. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. I mean, it was made jokes of for years, this whole idea of you wear this thing around your neck so somebody will come and get you. So obviously it is a genuine fear to a large population or else that wouldn't have been become an archetypal type commercial of the last century. Absolutely. So You're absolutely it, right. It, they, it, they actually found a fear that is very common among the general population and they built a marketing campaign around it and it was very successful. Yeah. So... The point that I'm making, though, is just by removing those toxins, just by removing those toxicities, much of the symptomology was resolved. Mm -hmm. And then if the body needs a little bit of assistance and you can give it certain other things to help it perform better or achieve that that level of functioning, which some people would say, well, if you're right, then you shouldn't have to do that. But remember, sometimes when the fire comes in, the spark that causes the fire, the fire causes the trees to burn down, then you may have to reseed that area that's been burned down. Yes, you've taken out the spark and yes, you stopped the fire, but there's already been damage. And so for that damage, to get that damage, you may need to do certain things to enhance the body and to help it to get back to where it used to be. But I don't start there. I mean, you you start by first putting out the spark and taking out the fire. That would be starting at the end stage while the things are still crumbling and burning, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't want to put in new doors and new carpet and new windows and a house that's burning. Right. That, yeah, I think everybody can get that. That's good. Now, coming back to that three or four name thing, idiopathic means we don't know the cause, right? Correct. Demyelinating means the myelin sheath of the nerve cell is somehow, it's it's it's, it's coming apart. It's just, it's not there anymore in the same right. integrity. It's so, not providing the insulation, insulation, just like in a wire. Right. It's not providing that insulation that's necessary in order to conduct an action potential. Right. So electricity can't flow through the neurons, the nervous exactly. system as well. And then, of course, neuropathy. We talk about uh, neurological symptoms like uh, they call it diabetic neuropathies. There's all different neuropathies out there. Exactly. So she was... Her diagnosis was idiopathic, unknown, demyelinating, meaning the myelin's being ripped off, mm-hmm. poly, which means many, mm-hmm. and neuropathy, meaning uh, loss of uh, Neurological, innervation. Yeah, fu- you- yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is where, I, you know, we've talked about silver before because when one of the researchers found receptor sites on the myelin sheath of, every, of all places, and then when the, the most famous case of uh, recovery from MS was a woman, Nancy DeLise, it's all over the web, her story, 
how she utilized a lot of things, but the silver was helpful to her as well. We see, we look to natural substances that regenerate tissue. And then, but, but the, the most important thing that you said there was something I also found out as a homeopath that, you know, I didn't have access to a lot of these medical tests. I wasn't writing out scripts for those things or reading them regularly. I had a different method. And so people often would come to me after going to the docs, docs scratching their head. They're lost. They want to get, what do I do, Robert? I was like, I've never heard of that. Just like you said, I don't, I don't know what that is, but let's talk about what are the symptoms. They'd, t- they'd list off the symptoms, and I'd find out what systems had been corrupted, what was not functioning. And then we'd you know, find out what was in their background, what kind of corruption could have happened, what kind of toxins were they exposed to or ingesting. And there we undid it that way without even knowing what the heck the label was, although we could eventually figure it out, of course. You're absolutely right, Robert. Absolutely. Well, can I have you elaborate on that after the break? After the break, because I love the synergy here because it's on so many levels. Our doctor listeners are getting it. Our lay listeners are getting it. I think it's all coming together. So stand by. Lots more healing to go in the last segment of this week's Advanced Medicine Monday right here on The Robert Scott Bell Show. Live around the world. The Robert Scott Bell Bell Show. Making sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert. All right, wrapping up this week's Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashi Batar. And Dr. Batar, I mean, I just find it uncanny. I mean, even as many times as we've done this show, and we've done a lot of them, each time we have these synergies of history and background from different perspectives, it's still amazing. I still love it. Well, you know, Robert, your point before we went to the break when you were talking about the undoing of some of these components that without even realizing what we're doing, we can sometimes help these patients by just going back into their history and seeing all these factors that have possibly contributed to their current situation, looking at all the experiences and all the nuances that these individuals have basically experienced that led to this problem. And by doing so and by understanding the picture, getting the greater global perspective, if you will, for that particular individual, many times we can help them without even really helping them because we have an understanding of where they came from and then it gives us, hence we have clues that allow us to move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And one of the mentors that I had in medical school, he was a, I think I've mentioned him before, he was a, a bronco rider. One of his claims to fame was that he had broken every bone in his body breaking horses. Wow. And uh, very interesting guy. And he basically told me once that just listen to your patients. If you can listen to your patients long enough, they will always tell you what's wrong with them. And I have found that to be one of the greatest truths in clinical medicine, that if I can just listen to my patients long enough, they will tell me exactly what's wrong with them. But but that doesn't happen in modern medicine. You get two, three minutes with a doctor. Yeah, that's true, but... Yeah, but I'm going to toot your horn, Dr. Batar, and and the horns of of the good docs out there, like Nick Gonzalez and others, that they take the time it takes to learn from the patients what's really going on. And even having a support staff that understands just what you said, that will be listening as well for clues that they can clue you in on even when you're not there. 
Well, that's a very good point because when you have a good staff and they can be your eyes and your ears and help you to understand what's going on with the patient, what they're experiencing, that's a very, very important component. And yes, I do believe that it's impossible to do this in five minutes or 10 minutes. You need to sit there and spend time with the patient. If nothing else, Robert, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to a patient in my belief at least in my experience has been just sitting and listening to them because oftentimes they have not had anybody listen to what's going on with them and there's always that goal in my mind I always remember what that doctor said listen long enough and hard enough and you will find out what's wrong with them and Mm -hmm. I would say 85 90 percent of the time the patient ends up telling me what's wrong with them without me having to do anything special and and it's in the patient's own history. I mean, they don't even realize they're telling you what's wrong with them. But yeah. what I mean is they'll tell you, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you know that every time X and Y and Z occur, this, this is a picture. So, you know, if you, I've got that frame of reference now. So a person will come in, they'll say, I'll just give you an example. They'll say, I'm just really exhausted. And so I'll say, do you have problems so in my mind, when somebody says they're exhausted and looking at their a head map, which is all being electro, the, the electronic version that we've talked about a little bit on the air that you know everybody's going to have access to shortly, yes. um, the head map, Advanced Health Evaluation Assessment for Detoxification Medical Assessment Program. So I've got that questionnaire that they've already filled out. I've got that in front of me, and the chief complaint is just overwhelming fatigue, and they just don't understand why it is, and blah, blah, blah. And you know they had this situational stress that occurred, and then after that, their body just couldn't cope, and they just have been more and more exhausted. And they just can't seem to get ahead of it. So I'll ask them these three questions. I'll say, when they've given me that information, by the way, already in my mind, I think I know what the issue is. So based upon the fact that I've seen so many of these cases, I will not throw three questions to them. And I will say, do you have difficulty getting up out of bed in the morning? Uh, Yes, Dr. Patar, I do. Actually, I do have that. Do you have around 2, 3, 4 in the afternoon, a slump of energy that seems to drive you to drink some something sugary or like a coffee and you feel like a need to do this. And if you don't, you just feel like you're sliding off your chair. And if you can even find some area, even a couch or something to just lay back, 45-degree angle where you feel an overwhelming improvement in that leaking energy, if you will, yes. and they'll look at me like, how in how the you know? world did you know that? Yeah. And they'll say, yes, I do. And then my last question is, what time do you go to bed? Uh, 11 o'clock. Have you found that if you miss your bedtime for whatever reason, that about a half hour to 45 minutes after you've, you've missed your bedtime, that you can't go to sleep and all of a sudden you want to go and solve world hunger and clean up the garage and mm-hmm. you know go out there and mow your yard at 1 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and they say, yeah, I just get the second burst of energy. Well, Robert, you and I both know what that is. It's adrenal exhaustion. Yeah, exactly. They've just fried themselves out of their mind. But it's the patient's history that brought me to that conclusion. Hey, they told you. It's test. exactly what you said. They told you. That's what the exactly. beauty also of, is of the head map. Why I'm so excited that that'll be coming out soon for everybody to access. But, uh, it, you know, I, 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 I want to go back to one other thing because we talked off the air about this because that question from Joanne keeps burning in my mind because she wanted specifically a natural doctor in New Hampshire. And I thought, OK, can we find somebody for her is somebody that, that trained with you? And you came back at me and said, wait, wait, she was asking for a natural doctor. You got to understand even what you do. Dr. Batar does is not all natural. Oh, no. Well, that's that's a point that I think we should make. And uh, do, do you want me to answer that? We, we got to make it in less than two minutes, but if you can, we'll do okay, it. Okay, well, 
Well, basically, then I'll just make it in like a minute and 30 seconds, Robert. Here's the issue. When people say natural, I'm not always using natural means because, remember, I'm dealing with an unnatural problem. The toxicity issue is not a natural issue. So many times I will use an, an unnatural solution. For example, EDTA, ethylene diamine tetracetic acid, or DMPS, dimercaptor propanosulfonate. These are chelators that I'm using. There's nothing natural about them. These are synthetic man-made amino acids. They're inert meaning whatever goes into the body comes back out the same way except it's bound to the metals, but it is not natural. So there's this misconnect or disconnect where people think that everything I do is all natural. I am trying to achieve the state of naturalness mm -hmm. by whatever means I possibly can with the underlying safety net of doing no harm. So yes, I will use synthetic unnatural substances to pull out synthetic unnatural substance out of the body in order to make the body get back to its natural state. Yes, that is my goal. But I'm not a natural doctor, meaning that <laughs> I'm not just going to use an herb or a vitamin to try to help a person get better. In fact, oftentimes those same type of doctors are even worse because they're trying to use a natural substance to mimic a symptom just like a mm -hmm. allopathic doctor is going to use a pharmaceutical to block a symptom. Right. So you want to make sure that the doctor is not trying to block symptomology synthetically or with the pharmaceuticals or naturally with an herb or a vitamin because that's not the answer right you well, don't want to cover it up key is what you said here is you're meeting an unnatural problem with something that is indeed synthetic but it's binding it and bringing it out and it's doing no harm in the process similarly in homeopathy we never had to use homeopathic ddt ddt didn't exist but when we wanted to alert the body to pull it out, we would utilize it in a homeopathic form. You're simply needing something that is unique and different, never before in existence, and we found a way to bind it out and get it out. And now we got to get out of town because we're out of time. That's a great example to finish the show with, Robert. <laughs> All right. Well, as Dr. Vitar reminds me each and every time I'm with him, I remind you each and time, every time I'm with you that the power to heal is most definitely yours. Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show.